Hey everybody, welcome back to the Multi-Useiverse podcast. My name is Gar Punnett, Chief of Staff here at Reapley and Lead Circular Economist. This week we spoke to Scott Breen, the Vice President of Sustainability at the Can Manufacturers Institute. We got into deeply into recycling conversations around where the system is today, how can we actually instigate and facilitate change when it comes to recycling systems and the good work that the Can Manufacturer Institute is up to, um, whether that's providing grants or really leading the education around how metal is still the future of recycling and consumer packaging. Enjoy. I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. You're, you're now the first guest <laughs> in which they also have a podcast. Um, and you've been quite a leader in this space. You're almost on five years um, yeah. with your podcast. Um, tell me about how it started, because I would love to know your journey in that. And then also, uh, really, I've got a couple follow-up questions then on the podcast, because I'd love your opinions on sort of what you've gotten along the way and how sustainability has maybe changed along the way. Sure. So you want to hear the meet cute story with my podcast exactly. co-host. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's very cute. Master shirt. So we, it was at a networking event because that's how people of course meet. And so uh, we just started talking at the networking event and afterwards, Jay Siegel, who's my podcast co-host, he said, yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you. You have good BS conversational skills. What would you think about starting a podcast? And at the time I was an attorney, like practicing attorney at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And as an attorney, you know, I liked being an attorney, but it's it's a lot of reading and writing. You get involved in the legal problems. You're not creating. You're not trying to make things more efficient. You know, if there's not a legal problem, you're not involved. And the podcast offered me an opportunity to be creative, start something, and craft it, and have something exist that wouldn't exist without my efforts. So I was very attracted to all of this, and Jay seemed like a nice guy. So we thought about what podcasts we like. And to your point, five years ago, the space was a lot smaller. Uh, I joked that, like, Everybody's got a podcast now, right? Uh, even even you do, Gar. Oh my god! Oh, so man. shots fired. <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, but we look. We thought we okay. We like uh, the the how I built this. You know, where they interview people and get into the weeds of how they started something. We like how stuff works, where they explain a concept. So we tried to do both of those in our podcast, where each episode we do. A different concept. You know, our, our tagline for the sustainability defined podcast is defining sustainability one concept and one bad joke at a time. So we first introduce the concept, 15 minutes, assume the listener knows nothing about it. Just, yeah, we intersperse some jokes in there, but it's, we try to be rapid fire insights explaining things. And then 25, 30 minutes after everybody's up to speed now on the concept, 25, 30 minutes with an expert in the field. That's a bit more of the how I built this feel to it. And yeah, been over five years. We're up to, I think, like 450,000 downloads every month close to all 50 states, uh, people in North Dakota, we kind of need someone there to download so we can say 50 states, but most of the time it's all 50 states and then uh, close to a hundred countries. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Oh, that's, I love that. And I love hearing that for our industry. Um, when it comes to uh, really the next question though, out of these three choices um, in your first season, you talked about electric bikes, sustainable yeah. apparel and sustainable beer which one of those have outperformed expectations, stayed about the same, or underperformed expectations, do you think, on five years later? Like the topics or the episode downloads? The, the, the topics. The topics themselves, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I, I think electric bikes has, has quite come quite a bit of ways, actually. I even see in my local bike share in, here in D.C., there's electric bike options. 
And my understanding is that during COVID, it was actually hard to get bikes right? because people were, were trying to buy them and there were some supply chain issues. And the technology is really, you can go very far on a charge and go fast. Uh, and so I think just like EVs, I think the electric bike technology has grown. And so there still can be a cost barrier. I mean, the, the people that we interviewed, uh, they had uh, an innovation where it's called Ride, R-I-I-D-E was the company. And they saw that they were, when they started, they thought they weren't going to last because they said that their conversion rate was only like one or 2% because people would come in, they'd like the bike. And then they tell them, well, it's, I forget what it was, a thousand or 50, it was expensive. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And the people were like, "Ah, I don't want to pay that off front. I'll think about it, you know? And then they were like, well, shoot, we need to fix something. And then they thought, well, how do people pay for transportation normally? They pay monthly. So they introduced a monthly plan and all of a sudden the conversion rate shot through the roof and the company started doing much better. So I think with those innovations in the in how we're selling, as well as the technology of the bike, there's been improvement there. Sustainable apparel, you know, I think that there's been a lot of promises, but are a lot of clothes today still made in the same way with the dyes, the water use, uh, the way are people treated fairly in the countries where they're making a lot of this apparel? I think there's still problems there. So I think there's been some improvement, but... I think the and it's a, it's a bigger problem, right, than yeah. e-bikes. Uh, but there's still quite a ways to go. And then sustainable beer, I mean, I think it's more about how they produce it. You know, how they're sourcing the hops and all the things, how they're at the brewery. Um, so I think that there's been some improvement there. But I think that just because it, that's another thing that's hard to do at scale. Uh, there's still a ways to go, but people really like that episode because it, it's a little more tangible that it's a specific thing that people can think about. I was going to say, it seems like the clear winners are the beer or the toys. Um, and really <laughs> it's just the adult, the all, both of the adult toys in that way just make mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. This with the, um, what I loved what you said about the, the electric bikes was the fact again, and we've talked about this a couple of times now around service revenue. And how service mm-hmm. revenue really is sort of maybe our sustainable future in maintaining. And if you're paying a monthly fee towards something or towards the use of an item, that yeah. uh, having that be owned by someone else who's going to maintain the quality of that item is very important. Yeah, service was included in the monthly fee. And I think it was after you bought the bike, you could like change it in for the next model. Oh, and then they okay. would you know, sell the older model and, and they'll have gotten you to pay that monthly fee exactly. right, to buy it off. So. Um, well, let's, let's dive in here and, and you are, you are not just the podcast host. Um, you are, uh, vice president of sustainability, um, at the can manufacturers Institute. What, what does that mean? What does that mean for people who don't know what an Institute does? Don't know what a trade organization does? Um, why is it so important to our industry, to our economy? What does it mean for you on your day to day? Yeah, I mean, so trade associations, I feel like, are a world that maybe if you don't live in Washington, D.C., you're not as familiar with. There, of course, you can think of your local chamber of commerce. That's a trade association where there is an industry or a group of people that want to be represented by one single entity, right? So with the Can Manufacturers Institute, we represent U.S. metal can manufacturers and their suppliers. So our core members are the people that take aluminum steel and manufacture those into beverage cans, food cans, and aerosol cans. And our job at the Trade Association is to communicate the story of our industry to consumers, to lawmakers, uh, to do research that uh, 
gives us new insights into our industry that we can use to further tell that story in a better way, uh, to follow what's going on in, in the, at the regulatory level, uh, in bills that are being passed at the state and federal level, and to be the voice of the industry. And, in, and not only t- t- you know, talk to people and engage with people about the voice of the industry, but also to reflect back to our industry what we're hearing and so that they're informed. So it's, it's a little bit of both ways and, and to be that one representative. We uh, were in a luxurious position here as a growing startup that we found a space in circular economy where we get to be dot connectors um, mm, and we get yes. to have multiple conversations with different parties, same maybe industry, but we're connecting that those knowledge gaps potentially a little bit. Um, how have you found in your experience from that trade organization, from that institute perspective where you all are able to help facilitate necessary change and to help drive sort of process change? I mean, that's what's that's what I, part of one of the reasons I love my job is that I'm not honed in on one company's problems. And I think that could be interesting, certainly. But to think about it industry wide and try to think about that system change that benefits the whole industry is very interesting. And I take it very seriously that we don't make anything at the Institute. Right. The can makers that are our members are trusting us and paying in to enable us to be their representative. And so that's that's a really trusting thing. They don't have to do that. They don't have to be members of our organization. And so, you know, I work hard to connect those dots like you're talking about. And to give you an example of one thing that we set up, uh, we set up a grant program on behalf of a couple of our members, uh, Arda Metal Packaging and Crown Holdings. They're two big beverage can manufacturers. And they wanted to increase the aluminum beverage can recycling rate. And one of the issues in the aluminum beverage can recycling rate is that when the aluminum beverage cans go to what's called the material recovery facility or a MRF, this is where they sort the single stream recyclables, there are certain instances where the aluminum beverage can can get missorted. And you could think about uh, if you flatten a can really flat and it's almost like a 2D object, it sometimes goes with the paper because of the way this rotation process works. And that can be a problem. Then we don't get it back to recycle it. And that's particularly sad because someone put in the recycling bin, we hauled it all the way to this MRF, and then it gets missorted. That's not happening. It's not like the majority of the time by any means at all. But aluminum beverage cans, you can recycle infinitely that aluminum. Most of the time, 93% of the time, the aluminum beverage cans that are recycled in the United States get turned into new beverage cans. So it's really important that we get all of those cans. And the MRF wants it because they can sell it for a relatively high amount of money. And so with Ardaw and Crown, we set up a grant program with the help of the recycling partnership. So we talked, we talked to MRFs and said, you know, what do you need? He said, we need a little bit of grant money so we can put in additional eddy currents. And I can explain how those works if you're interested. But, you know, this additional can capture equipment. And we said, well, we can't do it ourselves. We don't have, we're a small staff. We don't have experience in these granting programs. So we partnered up with the recycling partnership, which is a national nonprofit focused on systems change and recycling because they had experience in this sort of granting. And then we made an RFP and, and to date we've given out uh, four aluminum beverage can capture grants. Hmm. And just with, just with those four grants at four MRFs, we're gonna capture uh, a lot more cans. We're talking 67 million aluminum beverage cans recycled per year. And when those beverage cans are recycled, that's a more than a million dollars in revenue. That gives you a sense of how much beverage wow. cans are worth. Yeah. And the energy savings could power 26 million U.S. homes for an hour. So I was pretty pleased with connecting those dots, and hopefully that gives 
you and the the people listening a sense of the impact when you recycle beverage cans. And then what's what uh, across what demographics are we talking? Are these cities, towns, where do, where were these grants issued? What type of impact were you all looking for on that? I mean, so there's 350 yeah. residential uh, recyclables, like 350 MRFs across the country sort residential recyclables. And so some are bigger than others. Some are more advanced than others. So we were looking for those material recovery facilities where there's a lot of volume yes, and okay. maybe they have an old eddy current or no eddy current and that we could make a big impact because these eddy currents, you know, $100,000 for the equipment. I mean, sometimes you have to modify yeah, the absolutely. facility itself, but that equipment, you know, I, I said 67 across the four grants, 67 million cans per year, a million dollars in revenue. The equi- equipment's only a hundred you know, per, but you can see very quickly that that equipment can pay for itself. So in Milwaukee, we gave, that was our most recent one, the city of Milwaukee and Waukesha County, co-own the MRF. So sometimes they're privately owned, sometimes they're publicly owned. But in that one MRF, we're going to capture 27 million cans a year, and that can generate revenue of about $400,000. And the equipment's only 100, 150. So you can see the pay, payback. Yes, yeah. Um, in the, so it, you were mentioning working with two different organizations. Um, yeah. And, and I'm about to use a term that may or may not be familiar to most who are listening, but in the coopetition model, so competitive cooperation, um, mm-hmm. what do you find to be the most successful results or, or why do organizations come together um, to work with you all? What is the benefit to each one of these organizations um, on sort of jointly offering opportunities like this or collaborating? Yeah, I mean, those are two of our members, right? So I think that, but to your point, I mean, they are both aluminum beverage can exactly, manufacturers. right. So uh, certainly they want people that are buying cans, like the beverage brands, to choose one or the other. And certainly they compete on things like price and efficiency and quality and c- certain things like that. Yep. Sure. Yep. And they're not... Uh, cooperating on that. And in fact, they can't cooperate on price, right? For antitrust right. issues. Yes. Uh, but in terms of on the sustainability front with recycling, making sure that the cans get recycled, I think they see that as something where we're going to all rise together or fail together, right? Because people don't think about our dog cans or crown cans. Although I do encourage you, it's kind of fun on aluminum beverage cans. If you look, you can see a little logo. It tells you you can see a little crown or a little AG mm. that tells you who made the can. And people don't normally think about the companies. Yeah, actually, actually explain where that, where that logo might be. That's fascinating. Uh, like uh, by the, where the nutrition facts are, yeah. it's often like where it says uh, distributed by X company right around there. There's a little logo. You can Good see to it. Know. Okay. Little, little hidden yeah. secret. Yeah. So, but these companies, they say, well, people are judging cans in general. Right. And so, as an industry, we need to say, talk about our average recycling rate, our average recycled content, our average value per ton. And so it's uh, we need to improve those numbers together. And the challenge is so big that it doesn't make sense for any one company to try to tackle it themselves. And that's why, and we can talk about this too, if you're interested, guys, we made these aluminum beverage can recycling rate targets Absolutely. where yep. the aluminum beverage can manufacturers that are members of CMI and the aluminum can sheet suppliers, so the people that take the aluminum, turn it into can sheet to sell it to those manufacturers, turn it into cans. All of our members that are one of those two things agreed to these targets where we said, okay, our recycling rate in 2020 is 45%. And that means more than half of cans are going to landfill. 
Uh, but the nice thing is, I mean, yes, that is the highest recycling rate among all beverage containers in the United States. But we need to be higher because I was saying earlier, infinitely recyclable, most of the time in a new can. We need to be better than 45%. So the, the most near-term target we set was a 70% rate by 2030. And so going from 45% to 70%, that's a big jump. To give you a sense of how big that is, if we were to have achieved that in 2020, if we instead of 45%, we had been at 70%, that would have been 25 billion more cans recycled, which is a lot of cans. And if we had done that, though, there would have been $400 million in revenue for the U.S. recycling system and energy savings to power 1 million U.S. homes for a year. I think that was, some, that. I think that was some of my favorite stats when looking on uh, cancentral.com. Did I get that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, looking it's at, the can hub. That's where you can go. Hub. Yeah, it's cancentral.com. <laughs> Uh, that was one of my favorite stats was seeing what that meant for uh, coal, um, seeing in terms of uh, not necessarily needing as much coal production, or I think there were some stats around to um, uh, iron ore um, yeah. and what that meant for the extraction of that material um, and resource. Yeah, um, because we need the scrap. To your point yes. with the co-opetition, if we can get more scrap pack, then we, all, everybody can incorporate more recycled content, and then we together have a better sustainability story. Love that. Um, so – Let's speak more about these targets and what this means for the recycling system in general. Yeah. Um, we've come a long way. Um, there's still more way to go, um, as, as the targets um, allude to and, and structure us for success on. Um, what is it going to take? Um, I, this is maybe taking off uh, the, the CMI hat and um, and maybe putting on sort of the, the innovative approach that you have and who you've talked to in your own podcast, the ideas that you have, but what's going to work? Um, are, what types of innovations are we talking about? Systems changes? What do you think is the future of, of U.S. recycling in that way? Man, uh, big question. So, Loaded question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a couple things to think about, right? I mean, one is... I think it's important for the people that are pumping out packaging to consumers to think more critically about what they're putting out there and can the system handle it, right? So I will say the nice thing about aluminum and steel is that most every recycling program takes it because it's easy to sort, it has a high value, ready end markets to buy it. Easy but it's not commodity. the case for other materials. Yeah, easy, easy commodity. commodity. Yeah. Easy commodity. And but where it seems a lot of companies are going is there, you've probably seen this guy where a lot of companies have targets around, we want to have 100% recyclable packaging or recyclable or compostable. Right. And that's where it seems to end. And so I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Just being technically recyclable isn't enough. You got to think about, well, is this material worth something such that the recycling system, you know, can, can handle this in a cost efficient way. How many times can this material be recycled? What is it going to get turned into? You know, is that, what is it get, is what it is getting turned into? Is Up, that something that can also be recycled? Upcycling versus downcycling. Yeah. Yes. Upcycling, yes. Uh, so there's many other things to think about beyond just, can this be recyclable? So I think that companies need to start thinking about setting goals around that and changing what kind of packaging they put out. Because right now you're a company, you can put out whatever packaging you want. Right. And it, if it doesn't work in the recycling system, you might get some backlash from certain consumers, right, that care about that stuff and more and more do. But it's not like you feel it financially 
for sure, other than maybe some consumers don't buy you or buy less of you because of it, if that makes sense. Yes. And that's why there's a lot of people looking at extended producer responsibility, where you would have a per package fee, maybe it's what's called eco-modulated, where there's some baseline fee to make it so that our recycling system performs to some certain targets, but that that baseline fee could perhaps be modulated based on, is this packaging maybe some of the things I mentioned? You know, uh, what is its recycled content or recycling rate or value per ton? So uh, that could help give that price signal and that motivation for those companies, even if they're not setting those kind of goals I talked about, to start rethinking what packaging they're pumping out. Uh, but we also need to think about the infrastructure that exists, the access rate. I mean, the recycling partnership, I mentioned them earlier, this national nonprofit working on recycling. It's very clear from their data that as you increase access, recycling improves. I mean, it's not kind of common sense, but as you go from no recycling or drop off to curbside and robust education, people recycle more. So it's expensive to give people carts. It's expensive to do that education. Um, but we also get that material back and that has an economic and environmental impact. So you got to think about the what we're pumping out and making sure that infrastructure is there so people can recycle it. How have some of the manufacturers of cans thought about some take back efforts and, and their investments and their, what they're doing to enable that system um, mm -hmm. that will ultimately benefit them. Yeah. I mean, that's goes back to the can capture yes, equipment yes. grant. I mean, those are grants, right? We're not getting that money back, hmm. uh, but that's because they want to stimulate that capture of cans, but also stimulate material recovery facilities saying, Hey, look at that Murph. They did that. And they captured a whole bunch of cans and made a bunch of money. I'll put my own money into it. So we were trying to stimulate good so, you know, an activity more generally. Excellent, yeah. But, but in terms of, I think, where the can industry is looking now is around beverage container deposit systems. So 10 U.S. states have deposits. You pay $0.05, cents, pay $0.10 cents when you buy the container. And then when you take it back for redemption, you get that money back. And that financial incentive, crucial. Uh, it means that a lot of people now co collect containers or recycle containers that they otherwise wouldn't. And the data proves that this leads to higher recycling rates. Then the 10 states that I mentioned that have deposits, and some of those deposit systems aren't all that great, to be honest, and not all that efficient. Yeah. A lot of them are at five cents. Some which of them all, are some of them are older or newer, and older, so they've got their new their problems. Most yes. all of them are old. They yeah. all most, Hawaii was in 2002, but the rest, most of them were in like the 70s, right? Yes. Yes. So they that average recycling rate of those 10 states, 77% for aluminum beverage cans. And the rest of the 40 states, like 41%. So that's a big delta, right? And so the because we're serious about the targets I was mentioning, and we know we want to increase that recycled content because we want to drive down our carbon footprint even further, that's why we're more serious about deposits. Came out with an op-ed uh, just last week with Reloop, which is a circular economy nonprofit and U.S. public interest research group, an advocacy organization, calling for a national deposit system so that we get rid of this patchwork make it so we have those high recycling rates everywhere. Uh, and we also included our best practice principles uh, to make a, a well-designed, efficient, effective deposit. And what's interesting is that Reloop, that circular economy nonprofit yeah. I mentioned, they did some research. What is that impact? If we had a national deposit system with a 90% redemption rate, what would happen? They calculate that we would annually avoid greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to taking more than 2.37 million cars off the road. Oh. And this is because you're, you're, that scrap, be it 
aluminum or glass or PET, it's displacing virgin material. And aluminum has the biggest impact like per you know, pound, right? But together, they all have an impact. So there's the greenhouse. A total of 155,000 jobs. And we'd collect 7.42 million tons of additional material valued at $6.1 billion. That's annually if we had this sort of national deposit system in place. Politically, that's hard. <laughs> Car. Yes. Politics. Why? What's next? Religion? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll get to it because we know how people yeah. ever cycle can get. Um, so, but politically, that's hard. I think, I, I think in it Illinois, is- it's, uh, we've had a bottle bill come up almost religiously every five years. Um, and, you know, we, we all have our thoughts on why. What's your yeah. thought? why yes well the politics as you say can be difficult in part because it's changed it's a change from the status quo right Right. that's first of all it's scary anytime and it's something that is talking about things being tangible right Right. like every time someone buys a beverage container they're paying five or ten cents more you can get it back but that's a very real individual hey this is impacting me decision right and i think some politicians are weary of some people may be seeing that as a fee or a tax. Now, uh, I think, though, that the ground has shifted a bit in the sense that there were some people that were against this in the past that I think are more in favor of it. And I think it's a secret that beverage brands used to, to fight it in, in part because yep. they thought people would see it as an additional cost and maybe it would uh, drive down it's- some people purchasing it. But they know that they need to get that material back because – they, um, and they should have kudos for this, are setting very ambitious targets. I mean, Coca-Cola, just to throw out one, they want to have an average of 50% recycled content across all their packaging. And I will say aluminum beverage can right now it's 73%. That's very ambitious because right now, plastic recycled content is quite low. Yes. Uh, I think it's, I don't want to throw out a number, but it's, I think it's less than 10%, uh, if memory serves me right. And just to get up to 25% recycled content for all plastic PET bottles, you would need a lot of material because you actually lose a third of PET during the recycling process to get the amount of PET back just to reach 25%, right? You would need every American to recycle a hundred more PET bottles per year. So we have a material collection problem to meet the recycled content goals or mandates. Some States like California, they have mandates for the recycled content. So I think that's going to drive some of the, that's different from in the past politically, like you were saying. So I, I think then in that equation, what is the relationship between cans and bottles, plastic and, and metal? How, how do you all um, uh, cooperate? Um, how are, you know, when you give a grant to uh, some sort of recycler, um, they're also doing plastic. Like what's, what's the advocacy here? What is the push for metal? Uh, is metal the... Uh, tried and true of the past, or is it now also the the future? It's it's very much the future because metal can be recycled forever and it can turn into the container it was before. But I will say that there's some things you do at the recycling. If you give, if you give someone a cart and you improve that recycling access, that's going to mean all recyclables go up. Right. If you institute a deposit system, all the beverage container recycling rates go up. But the can capture grants I was talking about earlier, if you put in an eddy current, an eddy current solely exists to sort out the aluminum. The aluminum so yeah. that really only helps cans. 
Um, so it, it varies by intervention, but sometimes we do work together. So I mentioned deposits and yep. we actually had a joint statement come out recently where it was the Glass Packaging Institute. So everybody's got a trade association. So yes, Glass, yes, Glass, 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 uh, NAPCOR, which National Association of PET Container Resources, NAPCOR, and us, uh, CMI, Can Manufacturing Institute, we came out with a joint statement around deposits, basically saying we all want our recycling rates to go up. We all see recognize the data that deposit systems lead to higher recycling rates. And here, you know, I mentioned principles, and you know, we modified it a bit so we could all agree, but here are principles that we could all agree to collectively. And so we did it work together on that. Do you all collectively get together and, and hate on plastic clamshell industry association or how does, no, it's all one big happy family. Uh, I mean, I'm focused on telling the can story Got it. and there's enough good stuff there to last me. I could have done the whole interview on that. I, so. I love it. Um, so let's, uh, okay. So really then, um, how does, you know, this is where Reebly's focus is around reuse. Um, and okay. recycling and, and where, you know, where in the path of recycling is reuse, um, you know, where, where do cans and metals, um, play into reuse where we just had a guest on who, who, t who gave us the wonderful quote that, um, reuse is the new recycling. Um, mm -hmm. and so what I'm, what I'm really curious about is where are the, where's the future for potentially some sort of service model? Um, are, are can manufacturers inter interested? Has there ever been conversations around, uh, establishing washing systems? What is, what does that look like? Is that any ever a, f a future possibility or is that just far too inefficient or not really thought out that well out? Well, I think it's important. I mean, you see it in, in EPA, they came out with a national recycling strategy where the national recycling strategy said, we need to go beyond recycling and we need to create a circular economy for all. And to your point, reuse service models, all the things, right? And so it is important to go beyond recycling, but at the same time, we are selling like more than 110 billion beverage containers a year. We're selling a lot and growth. We've had unprecedented growth recently mm -hmm. because people are saying, well, I could have PET, I could have glass, or I could have this aluminum beverage can that has the high value per ton, that has the high recycle content, has the high recycle rate. So people are, and there's other advantages too beyond sustainability. It preserves the quality because yes. it blocks out oxygen and light. You've got the 360 degree marketing canvas. So there's a lot, there's other reasons too. But given that we're going to see that unprecedented growth, it's important that we improve the recycling system for the can and go beyond that 45% recycling rate. And I think we can do that with improved access, improved deposit systems, improved communication about our sustainable advantages, including on the can. So we need to improve that recycling system. But for those that want to do reuse, I mean, metal containers are used quite a bit for that. You, Everybody uh, points to Loop as sort of like the yeah. reuse uh, model. And you look at Loop's packaging, a lot of it is sleek, shiny metal, right? Yep. So I think there's a place for metal in the reuse space for sure. But for right now, in in the more traditional realm, aluminum beverage can, for all the reasons I've talked about, is certainly the way to go. We're growing like crazy. And the more cans we get back, the more we can incorporate it into new cans. For the average listener um, or viewer, depending on wherever you're seeing this, um, <laughs> how does one help 
push change through their organization. Um, this is more of a, a broader look at both your experience of talking to many, many professionals, uh, both in your professional, again, your professional life, but also in the podcast life. Um, mm-hmm. I talk to so many people who are like, I just don't know where to start. Like, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, it might be, they might see a problem, but they don't know who to talk to. They might see a problem, but they don't know where to find a solution. Um, what do you talk to people about when you, when you have that sort of question of, Hey, this is how you get this going. And it all starts with what? Well, it's a good question. I, I think that first of all, it's important when you're talking with someone about a problem that you don't just go with the problem. You got to come with at least some idea of the solution. And that's something I'm trying to be better about, even just in my day-to-day job. You know, if there's a problem, I can't just call my boss or calling be like, oh, my God, this happened, and then stop. I got to say, okay, you know, uh, a little bit ago I got notified about this. Here's the, here's the co- important context. I thought about it, and here's one potential solution. What do you think of that? Do you have others? And I think if you're going to go to someone and try to create change, you have to have done some homework yourself and done a bit of thinking and not just be ringing the alarm bell. But I also think it's important, and this isn't like crazy innovative, but you got to think about their interests and you got to fashion it and frame it so that whoever you're talking to, that it, it, it rings true for them. And it, it doesn't necessarily need to be like a profit and loss sort of thing or a business case thing. It's just thinking about what does this person care about and how do I frame it in terms of the thing that they care about or that they're going to at least get to yes on and start to agree with me on. Uh, so we just got out of a I I completely um, think that's all about messaging and I uh, being empathetic with someone who's listening, I think, in that way, mm-hmm. where we've been talking a lot about circular economy. And I love your perspective on this, too, of how the messaging, you know, what we what we fear with circular economy is it will potentially run the same course as sustainability a little bit, mm-hmm. which is get to this point of overuse. I mean, that probably will just happen naturally, but how do we, how do we always keep claiming on to the, um, what the word actually means? And so in this meeting, we were talking, this was a marketing meeting and yeah, we were really discussing, okay, how do we get to the core of what we mean in a circular economy? A circular economy is so broad, it's, it's, it, in, it encompasses everything from sharing to remanufacturing, refurbishment, um, yeah. and ultimately recycling kind of on the perimeter. Um, yeah. But, you know, how I think that's what I'm getting from that answer, which is really who are we trying to target? How are we trying to give our most empathetic answer to them so that we don't get tuned out? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the most important part. And when we talk about you know, we can kind of harken back to one of the answers, which when we talk about the religion around recycling, we all know the people that, <laughs> that take it so seriously and, sure. and we need them. We need, but it's, it's, it's in that messaging that somehow it can get lost or it's a little over, you know, overbearing or it's like, okay, yes, we absolutely need to do certain things in the United States policy wise, but there's a, um, there are systems in place that we need to follow and there's procedures that we need to take or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going on and on with really the question is um, what are the dangers around our, our term usage? Um, you know, we, we, we talk about sustainability at length. We talk about circular economy. Where do you find yourself honing in on and making sure that people really understand what core concept I'm going to, not just give you an out on talking about recycling. Um, but you know, what other types of concepts are you really drilling down on to make, 
either those in the manufacturing world more aware of what you all are trying to do or in just the general consumer base? Hmm. Well, I mean, for us, it is this idea that of the, you talked about downcycling and upcycling that there is a repurpose. There's a, it's not enough to just repurpose something. And I think that's the step further where you could have something go in a circle, but can the circle, can you keep going around and round? Right. right? And I think that at least focusing on the metal can part of it, that's really key for us is that we want people to understand that our circle can keep going. And I think that that is something simple that people can understand. Uh, But to your point about the terms, I mean, to keep the religion thing going, I mean, we need a gospel, you know, that that people can keep looking at and referring to, because I think you will break people's spirit. And you talk about the religious recycling people. If I think all these articles about recycling being broken, which I think were a little bit overblown, and you're not seeing them right now because prices are better and recycling is a business. Uh, but if people think that what they put in the recycling bin is just going to the garbage, I mean, it it really it hurts, you know, to, to something um, I that's feel, very intrinsic. Yeah, I feel and probably so, that that question. I feel that probably almost once a month. It's like, why yeah. do I even still do this? It's like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. And, and because, and luckily I work for an industry with the can where I can say confidently that that recycler loves that you just put a can in the recycling bin because it's so valuable to them when they sell it to, to ultimately, when I say the recycler, I mean the people sorting it to sell it to people who will recycle it. So I think there's that, but one point I want to make about uh, terms and some, uh, a concept not getting too broad is I think we also need to be clear about what it's not. And I think that that helps also to clarify things as well as keep it from getting too broad if we all agree, nah, you know, so if we want to say, you know, you recycle this into a bench and then there's no way to recycle that bench, we're not going to that. I don't know if that's really circular economy. I love that. And that's a good ending thought. Um, while, while we wrap this up, we always do our uh, random act of reuse. Um, and that's how we end it. Yeah. So I I see some great reuse already in your frame here of the camera. Um, but it's, it's anything that you might've done personally to reuse a bottle, um, or to reuse some sort of aspect of, uh, or found some sort of use out of something, um, in your everyday life. Um, while you think of it, I can share mine unless you got yours right away. No, I mean, that one's cheating. That one's cheating. Why? Why? <laughs> let me explain. Okay, let me explain uh, yeah. this real quick. Okay, excellent. People know. Oh, I so like these. Them. Well, that looks very personal. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so these, uh, I really like, it was from the Arbor Day, Arbor Day Foundation. I was like, oh, I love this water bottle. And, you know, of course, I dropped it, and there's a little hole in it. And what's a water bottle if it's got a little hole? Uh, it's basically useless. Uh, so I said, well, this, this uh, you can't, it's too, uh, like, this isn't the kind of, metal you could you shouldn't place your reusable water bottles in the curbside bin oh you should take it to like a transfer station or or a metal scrapyard or something but anyway so i didn't i didn't want to have to deal with that just yet so i said well i'm going to buy some fake flowers and put it in the water bottle that has a hole in it so there is that um but go ahead i'll think of uh, something else while you're going yours i'm uh so we we have to uh we had to demolish a certain amount of tile um, and I didn't want to throw it away. Um, but what that tile and that little bit of uh, 
sort of cement mix was perfect for was actually building basically an irrigation channel um, in our yard. Mm. Um, and so that's, uh, that's going to be perfect um, for that specific use. And then we'll cover that a little bit with, with some of the, the metal uh, from um, our, our gutters. Um, and mm. so that's actually, I, I was very excited about thinking through what we were going to do with this material that we had somehow just now obtained through a little bit of a remodel. Mm. Okay. Well, <laughs> that was, there was, that was a good 30 seconds. I know. I know. Um, so one is that I know with, uh, the re the loop thing, they actually yes. sent me some stuff. Right. And then it's like different times, uh, has been, I fi I finished some things faster than others and I haven't been able to ship the thing back. So I've been like, well, shoot, I, I have now these containers. So I've been using it to go to the store and use it. There's a couple of stores here where you'd use the tear, right? Oh, and yeah. you can go there and using it as like the reusable Did container you, I go to without buying new Tupperware. And I love like that. that. Did you get the Hagen dazs That was a no, hot, that's a hot that. item. And from Luke. I don't know if they can ship that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it literally, yeah. every time I look on the site, it's sold out. Like it was like, it's, so I'm always, yeah. I'm always fascinated. I want, I want that container. I love the way that container looks. So I was curious. Do you have a Haagen-Dazs favorite flavor? I'm a Haagen-Dazs strawberry man. Uh, I, I will always go towards a, some sort of uh, chocolate chip, um, peppermint <laughs> chocolate chip. That's just straight up. That's my go. It is the yeah. season right now. Exactly. So. This is it. Um, well, Scott, um, thanks for taking the time. Um, it's been such a pleasure and thanks for sharing all of your knowledge from the can manufacturing Institute to your life in the podcast, to everything else that you've, uh, you see that we're going to have to start pursuing to get to a more sustainable future. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Excellent.